Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 190th episode of the Nauticast, titled The Red Sword of Heroes, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Arya 7, in which Arya watches Beric Dondarrion win a battle against the Bloody Mummers, welcome Gendry to the Brotherhood, and also declare that his immortal life is worse than death. Damn, we just can't get a happy ending for anyone. If you're looking for a happy ending, I think you came to the wrong place. Over and over and over again. And we're very excited to welcome our special guest for the episode. We've had him on before for another Arya chapter back in Clash of Kings. Welcome back to the Nauticast, Wolfman Zack, our very own Hand of the King. How you doing, buddy? Doing great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. Of course. As much fun as we had with that that Jock and Hagar, Arya, and Harrenhal chapter back in Clash of Kings, I feel like that was just the appetizer for this one. We were just getting ready for it, so super happy to have you. Yeah, exactly. That was just a little taste, because this one was so far down exactly. the road, but we finally made it. We did it all <laughs> together. We're here. The road is long, but it has an end, sure. at least for us, sure not for Arya. And not for, not for the series as a whole, so. <laughs> <laughs> Never, apparently. Exactly. Exactly. So our spoiler warning is always prepare to be spoiled for all published books, the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from one of our patrons, David, who asks, Greetings, not a cast. Question. Do you think we'll see your old co-host's namesake in the Winds of Winter, leading or being a part of a band of outlaws like the Brotherhood? It's mentioned in A Feast for Crows' Jamie Seven that he suspected to see the Blackfish leading a band of outlaws, which could in turn lead to a reunion with Uncatalan and Brynden that I find equal parts mournful and cathartic. I know this is still a long ways off before it's relevant to answer for you guys, but I sincerely hope you continue your A Song of Ice and Fire reread journey all the way through. Looking forward to new chapters every time they drop. Emmett, you, Beefish, and Amanu have taken over my life this last year and helped me look at not just A Song of Ice and Fire differently, but narrative and storytelling as a whole. Sincerely appreciate y'all, as do all of us. And thanks so much, David. We appreciate you, too. Thanks for the, thanks for the compliments as, full, as well as for the question. And yeah, that's a good one in terms of when and how the Blackfish comes back. Obviously, he escaped Riverrun with help of his nephew, Edmure, at the end of A Feast for Crows. His uh, location currently unknown. So what do you two think about how he's going to pop up back again, given that we're talking about the Brotherhood uh, in this episode? Oh, man, I really have just no conception. It's, you know, the the way the show ended, you know, I'm a very visual person. So a lot of that's what sticks in my brain. And sure. And they just, you know, they kind of went off the rails with it overall. So I just, uh, you know, I know that it's a, a really uh, strong character with a lot of potential, no matter who, uh, George ends up kind of pairing him with or setting him up with. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we haven't seen the last of him and George will have some fun in store for us. Yeah. I don't think the show really captured the heart of it. I don't see him just kind of fucking off and dying no, like he does in the all. show. Just like, well, <laughs> I guess I'll just die. Uh, I think, uh, there's a lot of great places for him to end up. Uh, I think a lot of the more popular theories is he might, uh, hit the wagon that's taking, uh, Jane Westerling over back to Casterly Rock, that he might be involved with that, and somehow Nymeria's wolf pack gets involved. Um, I've seen crazy theories that he's the hooded man up at Winterfell during those Theon chapters, which I'm not a big fan of. Because of his history, because he's kind of been a veteran of a couple wars, he has connections to kind of several different houses, like maybe indirectly, like say the Aarons, just through a service of Liza back there. Um, There are a lot of strange places he could um, pop up, um, and I do think possibly 
uh, teaming up with Sansa might be something that makes sense for him in the long run, kind of as the living cat um, and not to get too little finger with this answer but I think uh, there is a chance that I can see that happening but um, he's definitely a wild card he's definitely coming back and I definitely think he's going to do more than just die upon his return no that's super clever it's uh you know that it sets the stage for the whole queen in the north scenario that's a good point yeah I agreed with you both there's nothing but good answers nothing but fun answers for him I I lean towards him uh, showing up with the brotherhood just because there's the bit where uh, Jamie sends Thomas Sevens in to talk to Edmure in the bath, and Edmure sees him and wants him to get the hell out because, you know, Tom had his hit, his hit song about Edmure's whiskey dick. But uh, that right after that is when Edmure uh, lets the blackfish go. So it might be that Tom told Edmure where the blackfish could find some outlaws, could find the Brotherhood. Because uh, if so, yeah, I agree with David when he asked the question that, you know, given how well Brynden and Catelyn get along and the strong relationship they have, for the Blackfish to see her have been brought back to life, but in the worst way imaginable, that uh, that that had crushed his spirit in a way I think could be could be really dramatic. And if he does does go down in a blaze of glory, in you know, in uh, maybe a different version of the show, maybe it's because he's seen something so horrible and kind of kind of wants to go wants to go as a as a warrior as a hero. But I got to imagine if he sees Lady Stoneheart, that is gonna. That's going to be the worst bummer of a lifetime, increasingly full of bummers <laughs> yeah, for him. <laughs> Thank you so much to David for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here in the Not A Cast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash not a cast ASOIIF, where Sworn Sword and higher level patrons get to ask us questions, as well as having access, early access to our episodes, uh, exclusive access to multiple episodes every month, and a bunch more benefits. So check that out if you haven't already. But... We are here today to dig into A Storm of Swords, Arya 7, so let's launch into the synopsis. The man on the roof was the first to die. He was crouched down by the chimney 200 yards away, no more than a vague shadow in the pre-dawn gloom, but as the sky began to lighten, he stirred, stretched, and stood. Angai's arrow took him in the chest. He tumbled bonelessly down the steep slate pitch and fell in front of the septry door. The mummers had posted two guards there, but their torch left them night blind, and the outlaws had crept in close. Kyle and Notch let fly together. One man went down with an arrow through his throat, the other through his belly. The second man dropped the torch, and the flames licked up at him. He screamed as his clothes took fire, and that was the end of stealth. Thoros gave a shout, and the outlaws attacked in earnest. Great start to a chapter. But hey, what about Arya, our POV on this whole thing? She and Gendry are watching it all from a distance. Arya hates being left out of the battle. What is she, a child or something? But she knows that to stay alive in wartime, you have to obey orders. Arya kills some time looking at the moon and smelling the air for rain like a good little wolf, while the Brotherhood archers cut down the bloody mummers emerging from the Sceptre. Some of them are armored, but that doesn't save them from Angai's arrows, which are tipped with bodkins as well as broadheads. Arya decides on the spot that she needs to learn how to shoot a bow. Sword fighting is cool and all, but you can't do it from a distance. Well, right on, are you? You might be a little kid, but you're a step ahead of Jamie, Archers, or Cowards, Lannister. <laughs> Kill them all, she thinks, biting her lips so hard she draws blood. No, no, are you? The idea is to make the other guys bleed. You'll get there. The Brotherhood start using fire arrows, and the Sceptre is well and truly blazing by the time the Mummers come rushing out en masse. Two Ibanese lead the way, holding their big shields high to guard the rest. Oh, say what you will about the Mummers, but they know how to fight. Gotta hand it to him. Disclaimer, you do not, in fact, have to hand it to the Bloody Mummers. <laughs> the battle is joined as the Mummers start shooting back, killing Wadi and Kyle. Oh no, not Kyle! Thankfully, Beric leads a charge, and Lem avenges our beloved buddy Kyle. 
Beric sets a dude's hair on fire with his sword, and even Thoros' horse gets in on the action, kicking a guy in the face. Suck on that, Shadowfax, who's the lord of all horses now? Arya sees young Ned fighting with Beric and thinks that's unfair. He's only a little older than her, why can't she fight if he can? But even if Arya rode into the battle right then, it would be over before she got there, like relief pitchers trying to run in from the bullpen in time to join a fight. The Brotherhood quickly wipe out the Mummers, letting a couple go to carry the word back to Harrenhal. Several outlaws went into the Burning Sceptre to save some captives, and also Septon Ut, who Arya remembers from Harrenhal as the Mummers' most notorious pedophile and child killer, who felt so guilty, ever so guilty about his crimes, that he had his comrades whip him for it, which they found very funny. Glad they had a good time, I guess. Beric puts the surviving Mummers on trial, with his men providing testimony on the Mummers' many crimes, or at least some of them. Can't list all their crimes, or we'd be here until winter. What about the case for the defense? One Mummer protests that he's a soldier, another offers gold, yet another says he'd happily join the Brotherhood instead. They all hang, every one of them. Tom provides the funeral music, and Thoros asks R'hllor to burn their souls forever. If the Lord of Light has time in between child sacrifices, we know you have a busy schedule. Arya watches the bodies dangled from the branches as the crows show up for dinner. She wonders what the crows are saying to each other. My money's on meats back on the menu, boys. <laughs> Arya's glad that Septon Ut is dead, but she really wishes that Sandor was too. Instead, the Brotherhood treated Sandor's wounds and set him free with his sword, his horse, and his armor. Arya was disgusted by that. And they took Sandor's gold at least, so it's not a total loss. The Brown Brothers watch as their Septry collapses. There are only eight of them left. According to one of them, there used to be 44, and this used to be a paradise. They had a vineyard, an arbor, even some beehives. But then the Lannisters showed up to burn down everything they couldn't steal, and since then they have played host to monster after monster. One charming visitor started killing the brothers one by one to force them to give up their gold. How did the eight of you survive? asked Angai the archer. I am ashamed, the old man said. It was me. When it came my turn to die, I told them where our gold was hidden. Brother, said Thoros of Mere, the only shame was not telling them at once. Amen, brother. The monks share what little food they have with the Brotherhood. While they never ask the outlaws for their names, Arya knows that they know. Beric and Thoros don't exactly blend in. One of the monks tells Thoros not to pray to his false god. Guess we got ourselves a Tradcath return guy here. We used to have a proper country. We have to go back. Lem puts up a fight, pointing out that they saved the monks' lives and claiming there's nothing false about R'hllor. Melisandre is smiling right now and doesn't know why. Just imagine the big-ass shadow she can make with Lem. Anyway, Beric says it's their roof, their rules. He said the thing, everyone take a shot. And Thoros says that R'hllor won't switch off the sun if they miss a prayer. What a pushover R'hllor is. And he calls himself a god? What's the point of being a god unless you can smite the unbelievers? <laughs> anyway, Arya notices that Beric isn't eating. She's never seen him eat. Nor sleep, nor change his clothes. Arya stares at his many wounds, thinking about all the crazy rumors she heard about him in Harrenhal. They don't seem so crazy now. Beric notices her staring, and asks if he frightens her. Arya says no, of course not, nothing scares her. She's just confused. It really, really seemed like Sandor had killed Beric back at the Hollow Hill. Lem jumps in to loudly reassure himself that Beric was only wounded, and Thoros fixed him right up. No better healer than Thoros. Beric stares down Lem with the one eye he has left, before agreeing and sending Lem off to change the watch. And now we get one of the most beautifully written parts of the whole story. Here we go. Even brave men blind themselves sometimes when they are afraid to see, Lord Beric said when Lem was gone. Thoros, 
how many times have you brought me back now? The red priest bowed his head. It is Rallor who brings you back, my lord, the lord of light. I am only his instrument. How many times? Lord Barak insisted. Six, Thoro said reluctantly, and each time is harder. You have grown reckless, my lord. Is death so very sweet? Sweet? No, my friend, not sweet. Then do not court it so. Lord Tywin leads from the rear, Lord Stannis as well. You would be wise to do the same. A seventh death might mean the end of both of us. Lord Barrick touched the spot above his left ear where his temple was caved in. Here is where Sir Burton Craycall broke helm and head with a blow of his mace. He unwound his scarf, exposing the black bruise that encircled his neck. Here the mark the manticore made at Rushing Falls. He seized a poor beekeeper and his wife, thinking they were mine, and let it be known far and wide that he would hang them both unless I gave myself up to him. When I did, he hanged them anyway, and me on the gibbet between them. He lifted a finger to the raw red pit of his eye. Here is where the mountain thrust his dirk through my visor. A weary smile brushed his lips. That's thrice I've died at the hands of House Clegane. You would think that I might have learned. It was a jest, Arya knew, but Thoros did not laugh. He put a hand on Lord Beric's shoulder. Best not to dwell on it. Can I dwell on what I scarce remember? I held a castle on the marches once, and there was a woman I was pledged to marry. But I could not find that castle today nor tell you the color of that woman's hair. Who knighted me, old friend? What were my favorite foods? It all fades. Sometimes I think I was born on the bloody grass in that grove of ash, with the taste of fire in my mouth and a hole in my chest. Are you my mother, Thoros? Goddamn. Gets me every time. Arya turns her thousand-yard stare on Thoros next. He looks all shabby and wrinkly, Nothing like the wizards in Old Nan's stories with their custom-made robes and freshly ironed pointy hats. But who cares if he can get the job done? What job is that? Well, what do you think? Arya asks if Thoros can resurrect a beheaded man. Wouldn't even have to be six times. Just once. Ugh, Arya, I just got my heart broken. Really rude to do it again. But Thoros breaks her heart along with mine, telling her that he's not really a wizard, only a priest. The first time Beric died, Thoros swallowed some fire and breathed it down Beric's throat in the most metal version of Last Rites imaginable. Thoros had pulled this party trick for a few corpses before, but Beric was the first one to get better. That's all he knows. All Arya hears is no. At least Beric says that Ned Stark was a good guy, and in his memory they're almost willing to give up on getting a good ransom for Arya, but not quite. To be fair, the Brotherhood has good reason to take gold when they can get it. Beric is already putting the hound's gold to work buying grain and seed for the small folk and swords and horses for his men. Arya would love to keep the redistribution party going, but she honestly doesn't know if Rob would pay to get her back. And even if he would, what if Catelyn doesn't want her back? Arya could never be what her mother wanted, never enough like Sansa, and now she's all messy, dirtier than ever. Aw, oh, kid. Catelyn would happily wade through a swamp to hug you right now. Clearly we haven't had our hearts broken enough in this scene. We, we really needed George to stomp on the shards here. Beric says that if Arya's family doesn't want her back, he'll send her to Lady Smallwood, but he swears it won't come to that. He will see her safe to her mother's arms, he promises. All the vows you kept, buddy, but that one you're going to break. Elsewhere, the Brotherhood boys are back in town, cursing, gambling, and singing. Or at least Tom is. He belts out a handful of old favorites. The Mother's Tears, When Willem's Wife Was Wet, Lord Hart Rode Out on a Rainy Day, and then The Reigns of Castamere. 
That's right, it's time for everyone's favorite The Song of Ice and Fire theme song, Lord Hart wrote out on a rainy day. Can't wait to find out what happened next. And who are you? The proud Lord said that I must bow so low. Only a cat of a different coat. It's all the truth I know. Coat of gold or a coat of red. A lion still has claws. And mine are long and sharp, my lord, as long and sharp as yours. And so he spoke, and so he spoke, that lord of Castamere. But now the rains we pour his hall with no one left to hear. Yes, now the rains we pour his hall, and not a soul to hear. Woo! Who knew we had Thomas Sevens in the studio for this episode? Thank you much, sir. My pleasure. So Tom runs out of rain songs, having inexplicably neglected the best one, the rain song by Led Zeppelin, and everyone just listens to the rain itself, and one of the Brotherhood whining about how his horse threw a shoe. Suddenly... Gendry offers to take care of it, but not just that. He can fix mail, beat the dents from armor, maybe even make swords. And he wants to do it all for Barak and the Brotherhood. Arya knows what that means. She's being abandoned. Again. The Brotherhood try to talk Gendry out of joining them. Barak points out that he won't get paid, and Lem says he'll end up ahead on a spike. But Gendry says that he doesn't need more than regular food and a place to sleep. And he admires the Brotherhood for sticking together and putting people on trial, instead of just executing them. Beric smiles at that, and calls for his sword. This time the Lightning Lord did not set the blade afire, but merely laid it light on Gendry's shoulder. Gendry, do you swear before the eyes of gods and men to defend those who cannot defend themselves, to protect all women and children, to obey your captains, your liege lord, and your king, to fight bravely when needed and do such other tasks as are laid upon you? however hard or humble or dangerous they may be? I do, my lord. The marcher lord moved the sword from the right shoulder to the left and said, Arise, Sir Gendry, knight of the hollow hill, and be welcome to our brotherhood. From the door came rough, rasping laughter. The rain was running off him. His burned arm was wrapped in leaves and linen and bound tight against his chest by a crude rope sling, but the older burns that marked his face glistened black and slick in the glow of their little fire. Making more nights, Dondarian, the intruder said in a growl. I ought to kill you all over again for that. Oh, thank the gods, it's the hound. <laughs> Things were getting a little too earnest around here. Beric asks how Sandor found them, and he points out their open fire, kicking up smoke. They're not exactly hiding. What about the sentries? Well, maybe Sandor killed them. Does that shock you? No, not really. He's not here for a fight. He's here to trade a couple insults and then get his money back. Beric says he gave Sandor an IOU for the gold, but Sandor used it for toilet paper. Wartime shortages being what they are. Beric, though, can't give the gold back even if he wanted to. Like Arya told us earlier, he sent it with his men to buy food. To feed all them whose crops you burned, said Gendry. Is that the tale now? Sandor Clegane laughed again. As it happens, that's just what I meant to do with it. Feed a bunch of ugly peasants and their poxy whelps. You're lying, said Gendry. Boy has a mouth on him, I see. Why believe them and not me? Couldn't be my face, could it? Clegane glanced at Arya. Gonna make her a knight too, Dondarian. 
first eight-year-old girl knight. I'm twelve, Arya lied loudly, and I could be a knight if I wanted. I could have killed you too, only Lem took my knife. Remembering that still made her angry. I just wanted to read that part. I love Arya, snot-nosed little punk. Anyway, Arya says she'll kill Sandor the next chance she gets, and his brother too. Sandor doubts that, to say the least. He offers to make his horse a knight next. Eh, sounds good to me. Do you swear to be a good horse, uphold horse law, defend horses who cannot defend themselves? Lem tells him to get on that horse and then get lost. His brothers agree and start drawing swords. Arya's excited. Maybe she'll finally get to see some blood. The hound's mouth gave another twitch. You know more than common thieves. Lem glowered. Your lion friends ride into some village, take all the food and every coin they find, and call it foraging. The wolves as well, so why not us? No one robbed you, dog. you just been good and foraged. And with that, Sandor walks out. He knows when he's beat. Harwin goes to check on the sentries, while Lem wonders how a mad dog like Sandor ever came into that much money in the first place. Angai reminds us, in case we've forgotten, at the Hands Tourney in King's Landing, back in Book 1. Still calling it the Hands Tourney, huh? Ned's rolling in his grave. Or in the neck, or wherever his bones are, they're rolling. Angai himself won a big prize at that tourney. But then he met the ladies of the Street of Silk, and that was bye-bye prize money. Hey, at least Angai kept enough to buy new boots. Jack thinks Angai ought to have parlayed that wealth into a homestead, his own Westerosi American dream. He could have grown turnips. Jack likes turnips. Thoros, rapidly losing interest in the turnip comedy hour, points out that Sandor is out of a job after the Blackwater. That gold was all he had. Wadi the Miller, I love all the Brotherhood rando names, says that means Sandor will come kill them in their sleep to get that gold back. Beric begs to differ. Sandor would happily butcher them all, just not in their sleep. And hey, Beric got killed by Sandor, so safe to say he knows what he's talking about. Beric orders a couple of his men to keep an eye out for Sandor the next day, and to kill his horse if he insists on following them. The boys just want to shoot Sandor full of, full of arrows and end it, but both Beric and Thoros insist that R'hllor spared Sandor for a reason. Uh, I guess it was so Sandor could take Arya to the Red Wedding? R'hllor has a sick sense of humor, but I guess we already knew that. Anyway, Harwin reports that the sentries are asleep, Sandor just walked right past them. Naturally, no one can sleep too well after that, and Arya finds herself pulling out the coin Jock and Hagar gave her at Harrenhal. It makes her feel strong, like when she was the ghost in Harrenhal. But then she remembers that Jockin is gone. And Lamy, Yorin, Sirio Pharrell, her father, even Hotby. And now Gendry too? Welp, we're back in heartbreak territory, people. Really didn't take us very long. Arya whispers her kill list, but realizes she's starting to forget the faces of those she wants dead. Hey kid, that's what Facebook's for. Arya hears wolves howling in the night, and hopes they eat the hound. No such luck. The Brotherhood leaves the monks with a bag of silver stags to make up for all the graves they have to dig now. Gendry apologizes to Arya, but she says that she doesn't care if he runs off to be an outlaw knight and die. Whatever you gotta tell yourself, kid. Just like me, she's had enough of heartbreak, but that won't stop it from coming. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Arya 7. Zach, what'd you think of this one? Yeah, it's going to come as a surprise to no one that this is my favorite chapter in all of the Song of Ice and Fire. And uh, you did a great job on the synopsis, I think, kind of capturing. Thank you, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Capturing, uh, you know, in the first part, it's, it's not whimsical necessarily, but but uh, I, had a, I had a smile on my face the whole time. I, mean, I was cheesing. And then you get to the <laughs> stuff in the middle. And it's just so meaty and heavy. And it's just like, uh-huh. holy shit, I was on the verge of tears. And then it comes back with, you know, the Sandor stuff. So it's a nice little like despair sandwich there. 
in the middle. Um, <laughs> and, that should have been the title of the episode. Damn, the yeah. spare sandwich. That's good. Yeah, next time. Save it for another one. Um, <laughs> Except there'll be plenty of opportunities for Arya. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, uh, in her previous chapter, you guys covered it uh, with our good buddy Ruben, a good friend of mine. Uh, it's, you know, that's my second favorite chapter. And I kind of see that chapter in this one as two halves of a whole. It's kind of, you know, one, one big story there. So while I, mm-hmm. while I count Arya as one of my top five or six favorite Song of Ice and Fire characters altogether, she definitely gets some good character work towards the end of the chapter. Uh, but she really serves as a conduit to showcase Thoros and Beric and the Hound and, and Gendry to some extent. Um, Sandor and the Lightning Lord facing off in the fireworks factory of flaming swords and divine judgments in Arya 6 really sets the stage for this chapter. And then the forlorn monologue from Beric, that's just one of my favorite passages from any book ever. The deadly action is carried over from that chapter to this one with the stakes raised from 1v1 to a full-on skirmish. And then this chapter takes a long moment to sit in the quiet, bloody aftermath of it all and contemplate what it all means. Extremely well said, sir. The three previous chapters were a lot of talky-talky, and I get bored (laughs) unless something is killed every few seconds. So George obliges me right from the get-go, kicking Arya 7 off with a man dying, signaling the start of battle. This chapter opens with an action set piece, and once the battle is won, we're left to sort out who's left. But I don't just mean the slain and captured bloody mummers. We dive deeper into the walking dead man himself, Beric Dondarrion, and his fleeting grasp on humanity. The ghost of Ned Stark rears his headless head yet again, and the soon-to-be-dead Rob and Catelyn occupy Arya's mind too. Beric is trapped between life and death, Arya between guest and hostage, Gendry the endless turnover of feudal lords, the hound trapped by his lack of gold, which I hear can be exchanged for goods and services. (laughs) The chapter opens with a bang, but very deliberately ends with a whimper. So it's interesting, Zach, that this is your favorite Arya chapter, and the one we did last time is your second. For me, it's the flip. That the one we talked about last time with Ruben, that's my favorite Arya chapter. This is this is number two, my second favorite. And really, it's just as good. The only difference is that Arya 6 built everything. All its, its big, political, magical, personal ideas all around a single, steadily escalating set piece, which made it really exciting. This chapter is doing a bunch of different things. It's almost like a slice of life. It's a day in the life of Beric Dondarrion kind of structure to it. But throughout the whole chapter, George is just on fire, so to speak. From the opening battle to Gendry joining the Brotherhood to, yeah, especially Beric's big famous monologue, every short sequence is perfect on its own terms. There's a cumulative effect. The chapter starts great and just keeps getting better. So we recently had a run of great but dialogue-heavy chapters. Davos rose to power, Jaime released a tell-all book, and Prince Oberyn <laughs> swaggered onto the stage. All of them meaty with quite a bit to chew on. Arya 7 instead starts in media res. We get to rest our jaws a bit and just sit on a horse with her and take it all in. It's shades of Catelyn 10 from A Game of Thrones, who also observed a battle from horseback upon a hill, that time in the Whispering Woods. Arya doesn't like being left out of the action, but she knew battle was a time to follow orders. Shades of Ned Stark's military mind and discipline, I'd wager. She even takes time to appreciate the value of the bow and arrow in combat. All good RPG players know the utility of ranged attacks. The archers were using bodkins and broadheads, strong enough to pierce heavy plate. Gotta hand it to Arya. Like Emmett said, she's realizing the value of archery two decades ahead of Jamie Lannister, and that guy's actually been to war. 
It's a feast of imagery and description. The first dead man tumbled bonelessly down is a jarring image, and soon the pre-dawn sky is full of mist and flaming arrows, tendrils of smoke lifting from this already sacked village. I love that comparison to the Whispering Wood. It's very similar in terms of the removed position and that gorgeous imagery you're talking about. That Catalan chapter back in book one was dominated by shades of blue and white, icy colors, fitting for a chapter about the Northern Army fighting its first battle in the South, like they brought the winter with them. In this case, we're getting the warm end of the spectrum. The colors are red, pink, orange, the colors of the sun, the colors of fire, because this time it's not a Northern Army. It's the Brotherhood of R'hllor. It also feels different because Catalan and Arya are in such different places in their lives, both generationally and in terms of gender roles. Catalan is fully grown and starting to feel it. Her POV is full of examples of her looking on younger people with equal parts tenderness and dread. She sees Rob, the child she remembers crying in her arms, growing into a man, and she's both bursting with pride and desperate to somehow stop it from happening. That colors how she looks at the battle, at his army, all the nights of summer when winter is coming. She can't enjoy the bloodshed, even though it represents a major victory for her family, because she can't separate it from a more general terror of death and aging. When Grey Wind howls at the start of that battle, all Catelyn feels is pity for the Lannister men about to die. Arya, by contrast, would probably join in the howling. She actively wants the mummers dead. Kill them all, she thinks. Kill every single one. Now, of course, the reason for that is that Arya has directly experienced the violence meted out by both the Mummers and Gregor's men. Catelyn lost Ned to the Lannisters, and she still bears the scars from the man Joffrey sent to kill Bran in his bed, but she didn't go through the sustained deprivation and horror of the death march to Harrenhal. Catelyn also knew that Jaime's soldiers at the Whispering Wood were not themselves responsible for what she was going through. While Arya knows Septon Ut, she knows these assholes personally and has seen them do some heinous shit. So for her, it's not a question of poetic, bittersweet mortality. It's a question of payback, fighting the predators preying on the people, as the Brotherhood have been doing all along. I think this is inextricable from how Arya understands killing on a level different from Catelyn, and that is inextricable from how the two of them see gender roles differently. Catelyn has never seen war as something she ought to be taking part in, it's not because she doesn't think she's good enough. Catelyn absolutely sees politics as her natural domain, especially, and explicitly, because she doesn't think the men around her can handle it on their own. Fighting is different for men and women. That's so foundational for Catelyn that even with the best of intentions, she never really knew what to do with Brienne, until finally giving in and trusting her with a traditionally masculine role, the knight as escort and guardian, because there was no one else she could trust. But when Arya looks at this battlefield... She sees her stage. She's learning how to do it herself, taking note of how useful archers can be. Arya looks at young Ned out there fighting with everyone else and thinks it's unfair. He's only a little older than her. She doesn't realize that the main reason she can't fight isn't her age or even her gender. It's her value. She's a gold squirrel to be traded for ransom, as Greenbeard said, but not if she gets hurt or killed. Arya resents being treated like prized property because it ties into hierarchies of both class and gender she doesn't believe in, even when they materially benefit her, because they separate her from people she cares about doing things she wishes she could be doing with them. She wishes she wasn't special. She's been posing as anyone but Arya Stark for so long that her own identity feels foreign to her. She can so easily imagine herself out there instead, sword blazing to match the rising sun, 
exulting in the fear of the eyes of those who thought they would always be on the safe side of the blade. And that's something else worth mentioning here. Unlike run-of-the-mill Lannister soldiers like the kind of the Whispering Wood, the Bloody Mummers are cowards, who consistently avoid a straight fight in favor of torturing hopeless civilians. The Mummers are here to be the most blunt, cartoonish incarnation of the war machine devouring the powerless. That's why they're such cartoon characters, with the, the flashy colors and silly nicknames they get. There's no nuance here, as there might be if, they, if the Brotherhood was killing some random infantryman from Lannisport who really doesn't have much of a choice in any of this. The Mummers have this coming, if anyone does. And the outlaws who die fighting them are heroes, if anyone is. Look at how the Mummers protest being hanged, George ticking down their attempts to get out of it one by one. First one claims that he's a soldier, implying that oh, this is no way to treat a captured enemy combatant. Takes a lot of nerve for one of the Mummers to scold the Brotherhood about following norms, given what they do to civilians. Reminds me of Roos scolding Jamie about guest rate right before he annihilates it. Another Mummer offers to lead the Brotherhood to gold, assuming they're in this for the money. But, as Beric says later, they only use gold to help people. Finally, a third Mummer offers to join the Brotherhood, saying he would make a great outlaw. Again, failing to understand them, thinking he could easily swap clothes. Bloody Mummers, Brotherhood, what's the difference? No chance in hell. So the ambiguity of this violence isn't what it does to the target. It's what it does to the perpetrator, which is exactly what we're about to get into with Beric. What does it do to you to live and die this way? Where does it end? Catelyn herself asks that question at Rob's coronation, and Ilaria Sand will ask it again in A Dance with Dragons. George shows us the answer right here. When Arya fantasizes about killing the mummers, every one of them, she bites her lips so hard that she breaks the skin and tastes her own blood. That's where it ends, with the violence turning inward. When you have nothing left to burn, you have to set yourself on fire. If this battle has a fireworks factory... It's the dual flaming swords of Beric Dondarrion and Thoros Amir who punctuate the battle in fine style. Thoros even kills a man with his horse, telling me he's seen John Wick 3, and the Lightning Lord sets a Dothraki's long hair aflame. Not a very long or difficult battle for the Brotherhood. It was a massacre, as Arya Stark wished it so. Kill them all, she thought during the battle, and that they did. Arya has more reason than most to hate the Mummers, but I do think she's still bitter about the Hound escaping punishment in her last chapter. Not only did they let him go, but they mended his fucking arm. So Arya instead redirects those impulses for violent retribution at this allotment of brave companions. And not even a distinguished bunch of them at that. Some Dothraki, some Ibanese, but a pretty ragtag group of tertiary Mummers led by Septonut. Ut is a pedophile priest, a seemingly obvious parallel to Catholic priests given the history of the Catholic Church. <laughs> Ut feigns penitence, calling himself a wicked man, and often has others in his company scourge him so he can quote-unquote repent for his sins, which you can see as becoming an absolving cycle, where your crimes can be forgiven and then done anew. He's trying to wash away the bad with the quote-unquote good, and all that does is enable more bad. There's always the lingering sentiment that this sort of abusive priest is tropey or boring, but the sort of widespread harm and lack of consequence for that real Catholic church means it's always ripe fruit to me. Not to mention George's own personal tensions with Catholicism. And Martin also includes several admirable religious leaders in these works. Between Maribald and the Elder Brother at the Quiet Isle, even Beric and Thoros, we see that religion can cut both ways. Ut and the Mummer's victims were the Brown Brothers of the Sept, 
Their stores were raided, land and cattle raised, and 36 of them killed, before finally the remaining men gave up the gold. Thoros is right to chastise them for not doing so sooner, and I think this can be hewed back to that criticism of the Catholic Church, an institution that routinely valued wealth over the lives of people. Yeah, that's a great little moment there, where one of the brothers feels ashamed for giving up the gold, like he feels the need to say that I am ashamed, like he assumes they're going to judge him for that. Why shame? Because even here, among men who have ostensibly devoted their lives to humility and peace, there's still the need to be all tough and manly about it. And that ties into the gold itself, caring more about wealth than people, caring more about sticking up to the enemy than saving lives from the enemy. Thoros is right, the only shame is in not telling them at once. Who cares about material possessions in the face of all this death? It's a spiritual perspective that speaks to how Thoros has changed as a result of Beric's miraculous rebirth, or rebirths. In the end, the mummers all hang from a tree. A mummer tree, as Arya calls it, evocative of Jacques Collot's famous 1633 drawing, The Hanging, as part of his collection, Le Grand Misere de la Guerre. Sorry, I don't speak French. Everything I know is from Les Miserables. (laughs) (laughs) The men were given trials. Witnesses were called. Some tried to switch sides. Some tried to bribe. And they all swung from the tree in the end, to the tune of Tom's seven strings and Thoros's chance to burn in hell. The swift justice for the brave companions has Arya lamenting that no such fate awaited the hound last time out. Yeah, I like how George complicates Arya's righteous desire for payback by having her mention the Hound alongside the Bloody Mummers like they're all equally bad. It reminds me of how for Danny, the Starks and Lannisters are equally responsible for her misfortune. They're both the usurper's dogs who sacked King's Landing. Two things that look identical from a distance can actually be far apart when you get close up. Arya gets the chance to learn this about Sandor after he kidnaps her. She thinks that maybe Gregor really is worse than his baby bro and eventually she leaves Sandor off her kill list. Even the act of denying him mercy at the end of the book is complicated. Sure, she's getting revenge for Micah by letting him suffer, but I also think she just doesn't want to kill him at that point. It's uh, interesting where her her head's at at that stage after she spends that time with him. Um, And after, you know, all this barrack and brotherhood myth building and all the kind of slower Arya chapters building up, and even in some of the outside chapters where we get the names dropped, I like that George gives us both of these chapters with a close-up of the Brotherhood in action. Arya's removal from the battle here gives us the whole opening sequence, uh, and it gives it a cinematic feel, like an expertly cut action scene straight out of Commando or Helm's Deep or John Wick, like you mentioned. It feels like if you've ever seen one of those theme park stunt shows like Waterworld at Universal Studios with explosions and splashes and jet skis flying around (laughs) and punctuated by brief and excitable dialogue. Your attention is drawn to different quadrants of the battle for a moment of action before seamlessly cutting into the next, like a well-edited movie. I know I'm mixing my metaphors, but I mean, you get the idea. It's it's extremely cinematic, which I think goes back to, you know, George's Hollywood chops um, before before all the books. So built up the built up myth of Beric and the Brotherhood becomes the observed reality, which feeds back into the myth once again, a new verse to be added to Thomas Seven's next ballad. And it pulls the reader's attention right in close before George gets to the real good shit. Yeah, I love that chance they get to self-mythologize as they go along so they get to tell their story as opposed to leaving it to Lannister or Baratheons or Starks. Absolutely. That night, the Brotherhood Without Banners breaks bread with the Brown Brothers. Try saying that ten times fast. (laughs) And that gives us a chance to learn more about Beric Dondarrion. We heard his name long after Arya 6, but when we finally got to him, he was too busy fire-dueling the Hound. 
This chapter is our first real look at the man on a more personal level, or at least what's left of the man. Beric is a religious leader, or a symbol, or even a martyr, depending on your point of view. He is all three, but he transcends them all as well. But also, Beric is accommodating to the Brown Brothers and respects their faith in their own setting. Their roof, their rules, should cause a little jolt given how that phrase played out at Craster's Keep in Sam 2. But Beric wields these courtesies for purposes of, of solidarity, for community, so, the, so that the heroes and former captives can share this moment together. And again, it contrasts with the religious absolutism of Team Dragonstone, where speaking of the faith can lead one to a quick and fiery grave. Here, Beric saves these brown brothers and respects their religious and cultural practices post-battle. We'll see Stannis ride north to the Wall, but in the aftermath, he forces, them, he forces the wildlings to forswear their gods in favor of his own. More than any group in Westeros, the Brotherhood Without Banners holds values of knighthood, justice, and religious toleration in morally admirable ways. Well, for now. It's funny because the Brotherhood have technically burned down a sept here. In a different context, it could come off as an act of religious conquest, like they're sacrificing the building itself to R'hllor. But they did so in order to save the people inside. They matter more than the structure, the institution. That's what Beric believes, and that's what he fights for. So you gotta just marvel at the nerve of the one monk who tells the Brotherhood not to pray to their false god on the premises. Not only did the Brotherhood just save their lives, but they saved them from a member of their own faith, Septon Ut. Maybe that's why the monk speaks up, and here I'm ascribing way more motivation than a one-line nameless extra deserves, but I think you can see George working through the idea that maybe the members of the faith are overcompensating to hide their shame. They're not the ones out there guarding the flock. The Brotherhood are, even though they don't follow the faith of most of those they're guarding. Thoros has no such shame, because his priorities are in place. Prayer isn't the most important thing. Taking care of people is. In his mind, R'hllor isn't going to switch the sun off if they miss a prayer or two. He's not that kind of cruel, punishment-based god. Now, who knows what R'hllor really wants, if R'hllor really wants, if R'hllor is even there at all. But the point is that Thoros has found this enlightenment through the lens of politically righteous faith. Lem, as usual, doesn't take it so serenely, but it's interesting to note on what terms he objects to being told not to pray. He says that R'hllor is real, but not because he brings Beric back from the dead. That's hard metaphysical evidence, but as we're about to see, Lem is lying to himself about the nature of Beric's resurrections. Instead, Lem says, R'hllor is real because he can heal a broken man, which is what you need gods for, not mending a sword like the smith, but mending your soul, healing those intangible wounds on the inside. That's what R'hllor has done for Lem. And as with Thoros, that matters more than if anyone is really listening to his prayers. But on reread, we know that Lem will take a dark turn after Beric dies for good, and he and Thoros diverge in terms of their understanding of what God wants from them. The broken men don't stay fixed forever, because it's ultimately up to them and the people around them more than the gods, who stay silent. Despite the bread-breaking, Beric himself doesn't eat. Or sleep, according to Arya. He's one of those broken men, in a more literal way than how Septon Maribald will mean it. It reminds me of Frodo, as the ring took over his spirit more and more. But Beric isn't falling doomed to some magical jewelry. This is the loss of humanity that comes with death, even for those who supposedly can't die, maybe especially for them. He's barely held together by cloth and armor, existing only to lead these men in trial and combat. 
Beric senses Arya's uneasiness about his appearance, about his behavior, about his, you know, not fucking dying when cleaved in half. <laughs> Lem chalks it up to Thoros' healing powers, but Beric, like Emmett said, dismisses, dismisses that and dismisses him too. I love how Beric just stares at Lem with what George calls a queer look in his good eye and no look at all in the other. Beric is literally half blind, but Lem is metaphorically blind in both eyes. He's lying so hard to himself. Like, to be fair, it makes sense to believe this the first time Beric died, that Thoros is just a really good medic. Even the next couple times, luck seems more likely than magic, because you want to exhaust every possibility before deciding it's magic. But at this point, Beric has died six times, and while he manages to hide some of the wounds, he can't hide his caved-in head. What, Thoros put some disinfectant and a band-aid on that and it did the trick? Even if you could believe that, how do you explain Beric never eating, or sleeping, or changing his clothes? I don't care how good your doctor is, he cannot permanently cure hunger. I love what you said about the, the cloth and armor holding Beric together, like he's a puppet with a fiery hand inside. He's an idea. He's an image. He has to be in order to keep his men going. And that's why Len lies to himself. Right after saying that R'hllor is real because he can heal a broken man, Lem denies the strongest evidence for R'hllor's existence, because it would mean acknowledging that Beric is so broken that all the king's horses and all the king's men could never, ever hope to put him back together again. I can easily imagine a version of this story in which Beric's immortality is widely known in the Brotherhood and becomes a source of strength. Just look at those stories Arya thinks about here. The ones she heard in Harrenhal, and the legend of Beric Dondarrion spread. The Lannister men were so afraid of him because he was the one person they couldn't beat into submission. No matter what they did to him, he just kept coming. The fire rekindled into a blaze from the smallest spark. That's the ideal in guerrilla warfare. You overcome asymmetry in numbers by teaching them to fear you. Strike hard and fast, vanish before they show up in force. Keep them from sleeping at night for fear of you. It only helps the Brotherhood for the enemy to see Beric as unkillable. But for the Brotherhood themselves, or at least for Lem, that makes him inhuman. It means they're following something, well, other. Beric has a lot in common with Cold Hands, who we'll be meeting soon. And even though Cold Hands repeatedly saves the day, he still terrifies and even repulses Bran. Because despite walking and talking and fighting, Cold Hands is just so clearly not alive anymore. That contradiction is too uncanny to bear. So that which is a source of strength when it comes to making Beric's enemies fear him is a weakness when it comes to making his own followers love him. It's hard enough fighting this fight, no future in sight, without admitting that you're not only serving a dead king, Robert, you're following a dead man. Lem doesn't see what's happening, that Beric's essence is chipped away each time, he crosses the veil of death, and what returns is always lesser than it was. Six times this has happened, and with each one, it gets harder, according to Thoros. Is there because there's less of Beric to bring back each time? That to reach across that veil of death, the hand of Rolor has to flail and grasp till it can find what little is left of the lightning lore to retrieve? In Arya 6, I went over Beric's various wounds and how they relate to Odin, the Allfather, so I won't repeat myself here. I do find something numerically pleasing about Beric being killed thrice by a Clegane, though, simply because there are three dogs on House Clegane's sigil. The wounds we'll talk about this time are those on Beric's heart, on his soul. Can I dwell on what I scarce remember? 
It's profoundly sad to hear Beric unremember his entire life, his castle of faded memory, his betrothed barely even that. He doesn't remember when he was knighted, likely a high point in the young man's life. Are you my mother, Thoros? Punctuates it. For many people, their mother is their most intimate relation, the life bringer, the very reason of your being. Imagine losing that connection to your life. What is left? What happens when you are fighting for the people, but are no longer tethered to the people? I think of the popular notion that your life flashes before your eyes when you die. What does Beric see, if that's true? Does he see less every time? It's a scary thought. Many of us worry that when we look back at our lives at the end, what we see will be disappointing. But imagine seeing nothing at all, a void in your life portending the void that is death. Equally heartbreaking is Arya's offhand question of resurrecting her father. We haven't forgotten Ned Stark, but in the swirl of plot and character, it's easy to forget that Arya hasn't really had a chance to mourn or to heal. Since Ned's death, she's been on the road, attacked and then taken captive by Lannisters, then by Boltons, then the road again and now the Brotherhood. And along the way, she's seen some gnarly, awful shit, death and war crimes. Her only prayers are a list of enemies for whom she wishes death. All these horrors and all these traumas make it impossible for Arya Stark to mend herself, and it drives her descent into the cold killer we'll see as her story continues. Thoros speaks about the last kiss, not the Pearl Jam cover, but a version of Last Rites as practiced by the Red Priests. He was able to breathe his own fires into a fallen barrack, a common practice, but somehow that fire took root in his comrade and Barrack came back to life. But it wasn't Thoros's fires, not really. It belongs to Rolor. Life is fire, which means death is ice, as personified by the White Walkers. Barrack also reminds us of the material reality here in Westeros. The last harvest burned, the next one drowned, and winter is coming. That little line basically describes the through line of Feast Dance, but also animates short-term financial concerns for the Brotherhood. They need gold. No insurgency can survive without wealth to buy, f- buy or exchange food, materials, and favors. That's why they had to keep the Hound's gold, and that's why they have to ransom Arya instead of returning her. As we've seen, Beric and his men are amongst the most virtuous political units in Westeros, but it's not all idealism and fanaticism. It's grounded in the very conditions that gives them reasons to fight, that the small folk themselves are becoming materially insecure when the High Lords play the Game of Thrones. And one last time, it is worth comparing them to what Melisandre is doing at Dragonstone. While they may be the paupers of the surviving kings, The Baratheon class and nobility means they have access to wealth. All these comparisons between the Brotherhood Without Banners and Dragonstone aren't meant to say that this side is good and the other is bad, but how class structure can be a dividing and defining aspect of revolution. Beric and Melisandre share a common religion and a common enemy between Rolor and the Lannisters respectively, but their material realities mean their day-to-day concerns are far, far different. All right, I've been waiting for this a long time, so this is where <laughs> I'm enjoy the moment for a second. I'm going to step in and talk about my guys, Beric and Thoros. Uh, you know, that's why I'm here. Those material realities you mentioned are what sets this group of characters apart in my heart and mind. Beric is a lord, and his mission started with a decree at court from the king's own hand, notions of the king's justice giving wind beneath his wings. But here he is, bleeding and dying in the mud and rain under no banners at all, fighting for the people on the ground who couldn't give two shits about whose ass is warming the Iron Throne so long as they can continue living their lives unmolested. 
But what really punches me in the gut is the fading, the tragic knowledge that even if this folk horror version of Robin Hood and his merry men were to somehow pull off a mighty victory blow against the monstrous powers that be, it still wouldn't make Barrack whole. It wouldn't restore his lands or the face of his betrothed or fill him with his favorite foods. He's still the empty shell, more myth now than man. For whatever reason, these are the kinds of characters that have always resonated with me, characters that fight the good fight, quote-unquote, but have to give so much of themselves in the process. Be it resurrected knights or grizzled, extremely unsober detectives or red priests, what have you. (laughs) Something inside them that the light just can't touch. A sacrifice of the self in service of a greater cause, a greater truth, let's call it. A tiny black hole slowly deconstructing themselves from within. In the context of Westeros, we talk about true knights and what that means, and we see a couple of them in this chapter, which characters reach that standard, and I think that this display kind of makes Beric the true detective of Westeros. He's not solving mysteries, but he is making hard choices and living the hard life in order to make some small slice of the world a little more right. I can just picture Rust Cole lighting up a cigarette with cold, uncaring eyes while Septon Utt's feet dangle and twitch for his unspeakable crimes. Beric lists off his scars and wounds to Arya, invoking yet another character with a nightmarish backstory, the doomed hunter Quint from Jaws. These scars are the only memories Beric really has left, so his only memories now are death and pain, and he carries them with him everywhere he goes. As Arya notes, Beric tries to make a jest of it, but there's nothing to laugh about, just like Quint's wry, forlorn smile before he tells the story of the USS Indianapolis. And like Quint, the recounting of Scars is the precursor to Beric's monologue. I'll never forget reading this passage for the first time. And my memory is bad, so you know it's good if I can remember (laughs) reading it for the first time. And how it just completely knocked me on my ass. There is a sorrow there that feels so lived and genuine, something so tragic it can barely be articulated or even acknowledged. These are the internal scars, the pain that doesn't go away, tattoos on the very soul. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you were exploring Lem's perspective earlier. Beric suffers from both kinds of wounds, internal and external, but Lem can only allow himself to see one of those. And R'hllor is only tangibly proven to heal Beric's external scars while he remains so broken and hollow on the inside. And the outside is starting to not look so great either. Reminds me of another monologue that only recently entered the pop culture zeitgeist, but became an instant hard favorite of mine. Luthen Rael in episode 10 of Andor, now available on Disney+. Plus. It took me a while to make the connection, but as I was going over this chapter, it struck me that Luthen's speech could almost come from Beric's very own lips. And I'm going to do it here because, hey, why not? Calm, kindness, kinship, love. I've given up all chance at inner peace. I've made my mind a sunless space. I share my dreams with ghosts. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my eagerness to fight, they've set me on a path from which there is no escape. I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. By the time I looked down, there was no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. And the ego that started this fight will never have a mirror or an audience or the light of gratitude. So what do I sacrifice? Everything. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. 
Barak makes this sacrifice again and again and again, as anonymous as Luthen, as scarred as Quint, as driven and righteous as Rust Cole, burning his life to make a sunrise that he knows he will never see. As for Thoros, the Game of Thrones show gives him this great little line, I knelt beside his cold body and said the old words, not because I believed in them, but he was my friend and he was dead and they were the only words I knew. I just love the purity of that. That's love right there. And even though the characterization is somewhat different in the show and the books, it's, it's generally the same. I just think the dynamic works so well for me because George leaves so much of it unexplained. There's no clunky exposition from some shadowy visage of R'hllor whispering to Thoros the machinations of resurrection. <laughs> Thoros himself doesn't really know why it worked this time and not all the others beyond his faith that it means the Lightning, the lightning Lord still needs Beric around. It isn't until we meet Stoneheart down the road that we see the realization of Beric's ultimate utility. And if you choose to believe the R'hllor is real in some manifestation, that means R'hllor is out there in some form moving the chess pieces into just the right place, the, the, the hand inside the puppet, like you said, until all his plans can finally come together, keeping Beric alive just long enough to pass his life force on to Lady Stoneheart. Whew, really, really well said, both of you. It's, it's hard to do this passage justice, as it's one of the most beautifully written parts of the story. Maybe the most beautiful. It's one people quote all the time, like the Broken Man speech or Jamie's monologue to Catelyn about vows. And what Beric says here is basically a crossover of those other two scenes. It's a broken man reckoning with the cost of being a true knight. It's the follow-up and flip side to Sandor's trial in the previous Arya chapter, when the Brotherhood joined Beric in a chorus of defiance, naming all of those they've lost in the war, which is what brings them all together. Here... Beric is alone, talking about how he's lost himself. Thoros is here, who loves Beric better than anyone, but it's not enough. Where Beric is now, no one can join him. It's not something he can even fully describe. Moreover, as we'll see in the next Arya chapter, Beric blames Thoros for his situation. Six times, buddy? Six times is too many. Thoros calls Beric reckless, asking why he keeps putting himself in the position to be killed. In part, this is about political authenticity. Beric doesn't ask anyone to do anything he wouldn't be willing to do. He risks himself along with his people. That's why they follow him. Thoros inadvertently answers his own question when he points out that both Tywin and Stannis lead from behind, so why shouldn't Beric? Because Beric's whole deal is not being like Tywin or Stannis. He's a different model of leadership. He's fighting for a world in which the small folk are more than cannon fodder in the Game of Thrones, and he has to fight against all sides of the war to do that. And you can see it when Beric starts listing off his wounds. Some he just took in battle, but then there's the horribly vivid little story of Amory Lorch taking a random beekeeping couple hostage to try and force Beric out of hiding. It worked, Beric surrendered, and then Lorch hung all three of them. For me, this summarizes what it's been like in Westeros at war. A deliberate policy of escalating atrocities, in which any lingering humanity you might have is weaponized against you across class lines. Beric had the nerve to defend the people all of these knights and lords swore to defend, and his reward for that, from the official agents of the state, was to use his selfless heroism to lure him into a trap. I love the detail that Lorch thought these civilians were Beric's agents, but that they weren't. Because what does it matter? For Lorch, anyone can be a traitor, because that's what lets him kill them. We saw that in person with Yorin. And it also doesn't matter because Beric came anyway. Maybe the ultimate demonstration of his authenticity. He's not in this just for his own followers. He's in this for everyone. 
those beekeepers as much as anyone else. He hung for that, and so did they, Lorch killing them for no reason other than to demonstrate that he could, that Barrack couldn't save them. The only difference is that Barrack came back, but he wishes he hadn't. That's really what he's saying here, and that's really why Barrack keeps putting himself in danger, even more than his heroism. Barrack is trying to die. He's been committing suicide by Clegane. And that's so devastating, because like Zack said, Barrack Dondarrion is the real deal, the best this world has to offer. It makes me think of uh, a great line from one of my favorite movies, The Insider. I'm all out of heroes, man. Guys like you are in short supply. Barrack is exhausted of his lives, burned out almost literally. And again, the real tragedy is that his humanity is the cause of his pain. If Barrack really was empty inside, that would be horrifying, but it would also be easier than this. Barrack is hurting because there's just enough of him left that he realizes what's happening to him. He's a recycled soul. He's a copy of a copy of a copy, which is a metaphysical horror that has become worse for Barrack than death itself ever could be. But the actual tone of this scene isn't scary. It's sorrowful, even romantic. A deeply felt longing for a life that had some meaning to it. Barrack remembers that he had a castle. He just doesn't know how to find it. There is literally no going home for him. Barrack remembers that he was engaged to be married, something we'll hear about more in Arya's next chapter. But the color of her hair is gone. I can't help but think of Egret and John there, kissed by fire, their defining erotic and romantic image. Barrack has lost that. Even as he embodies love on some level, he can't remember it. Barrack may be the truest of knights, but what does that mean to him when he doesn't remember being knighted? He's making it up as he goes. He has no memory. And memory is arguably the core of identity in that it's where we continually reinforce our sense of who we are, even if it's only subconsciously. So the greatest hero of them all is no one. And we've been talking about a bunch of different great reference points for Barrack and for this scene, Odin and Robin Hood, True Detective, as you were saying, Jaws, but two specifically stand out to me. One is the Christian allegory, which George has been interweaving with many other traditions when it comes to Barrack and Thoros. Barrack's martyrdom, the intimate and almost sensual relationship to his wounds, even the way he was hanged between two other people, all point to Barrack as a Christ figure, sacrificed for the sins of Westeros. Thoros' story about the last kiss takes on a different light from that angle. It becomes a version of the kiss between Jesus and Judas. That's powerful because Beric does feel betrayed by Thoros, just in the opposite direction. Beric blames Thoros not for getting him killed, but for keeping him alive. It's an inversion, because while Beric does represent a crossover between the mortal world and the divine, he's not here to actually redeem Westeros. He's Christ in a permanently fallen world so he just wants to leave it behind. Which leads me to the other major reference point that Manu mentioned earlier, and that, of course, is J.R.R. Tolkien. Right now in my Lord of the Rings episodes for patrons, I'm covering the chapters where Frodo and Sam cross Mordor to deliver the ring to Mount Doom. So in this read, it stood out more than ever how similar the language is. The way George writes Beric is maybe his most moving tribute to Tolkien. Just look at how, how Frodo starts talking about the ring to Sam. This blind dark seems to be getting into my heart. As I lay in prison, Sam, I tried to remember the brandy wine and woody end and the, and the water running through the mill at Hobbiton, but I can't see them now. And then later, I'm so tired, and the ring is so heavy, Sam, and I begin to see it in my mind all the time, like a great wheel of fire, 
And then this one, just spot on for Barrack. I know that such things happened, but I cannot see them. No taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower. No image of moon or star are left to me. I'm naked in the dark, Sam, and there is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even with my waking eyes, and all else fades. The twist here, like Manu said, is that there is no ring. It's life itself that is tormenting Beric Dondarrion, and it's his own best friend, Thoros, his own Sam, feeding that fire. As bad as it got for Frodo, there was always a goal, a story structure driving him on. Look, there's Mount Doom. I gotta get there, and then game over. Beric has no endgame, other than a death that finally sticks, because there's no ring to destroy. There is only Mordor, stretching out forever. It ties into what I've talked about with, before with Beric, that he really feels like he could be the protagonist of his own separate story. But he's not, and he knows it. He's not Frodo, this isn't all about him, there is no boat waiting to take him over the horizon to find peace at the end. Beric is a secondary character, swallowed whole by the war and the story alike. What haunts him is not only what he can't remember, but the possibility that eventually, no one will remember him. He's a ghost. This is a ghost story, even before the ghost of Highheart shows back up in Arya's next chapter. And you feel that heartbreak come through so strongly. Even more so when George ties it directly into Arya's story. If it turns out the stories were true after all, and magic is real, why can't my dad come back? Well, because it's not wish fulfillment. It's divine intervention more than it is a set of spells, and Thoros just has no control over it. Thoughts of Ned and Ransom lead Arya to think of her brother the king and her mother. It's been so long since they were all together, what if they don't know me? What if they don't want me? I brought up Arya's unprocessed trauma over her father's death, but it's easy to miss that Arya probably didn't get a proper goodbye from her mother either. Catelyn Stark was still catatonic from Bran's fall, and I'm sure Rob was busy preparing to take over as Ned and the girls set out south. So Arya's last memories of her mom may be an admonishment of Arya not being ladylike, the petty concerns of Stark family life before Bran fell. So I'm sympathetic to Arya's thinking here, especially as a child, even though we know that Cat and Rob would be over the moon if Arya came waltzing through the gates of Riverrun. Arya's anxieties don't all derive from how she left things with her family, though. She worries about what they'll think about the stable boy or guard she killed since then. Her sins, so to speak which I think is a sign of humanity for Arya, that she isn't totally down the dark path as of yet. If she were, she'd be nonchalant about the deaths she took to keep herself and her friends alive, but that it still weighs on her shows that she's not falling into nihilism and short memory. Arya is all consumed by these worries, to the point she has Beric and Thoros give her some contingency planning if Rob won't have her. They could take her to Lady Smallwood, or even send her off to Beric's keep, Blackhaven, but they don't even think it's worth figuring out. Rob will have you, child. Your family still loves you, Farrah. Sorry, I mean Arya. <laughs> it's all my fault. We're stuck in Lord of the Rings mode now. <laughs> and yeah, that's a great point about Arya's anxiety. As bad as she feels about what she's done, that's better than detaching entirely, which is what she risks doing by joining the Faceless Men. No identity means no anxiety. No more pain. I think you can see the whole structure of her story like that. She loses what she loves, she deals with her anger and pain by striking back, but it's never enough. And characters like Jockin, Beric, and Sandor all reflect the struggle inside her in different ways. 
At the center of Arya's story is the House of Black and White, drawing her in like, well, like a black hole, before spitting her back out the other side, allowing her to gradually regain her identity by integrating the pain with it. The idea from the show that she would then decide to keep going honestly felt perfect to me. Westward like Frodo, maybe stumbling upon this world's equivalent of America? Who knows? Anything is possible over that horizon. But while I think Arya does paradoxically need her pain over the act of killing, her self-image in general is, yeah, another question. Even coming in the wake of the emotional meteor strike of Beric's speech, this part still really resonates with me. I think it's representative of Arya's story. She thinks that because her hair and nails are dirty, there's something wrong with her. Something that makes her unworthy of rejoining her family. And where did she get that idea that there's something wrong with her? From Septa Mordain, as she says here, Mordain compared her hands to a blacksmith, a very telling comparison given Gendry's occupation. Cleanliness is being used here as a class marker, as with language. Arya corrects herself when she says she doesn't sew good, making sure she says so well, the opposite of when she had to pretend to be a peasant girl while serving Roos at Harrenhal. So it certainly comes from Septa Mordain, and certainly comes from Sansa, but where did Sansa learn it from? And where did Septa Mordain take her cues from? And the answer there is Catelyn. Look at how Catelyn describes Arya to Brienne. Arya was a trial, it must be said. Half a boy and half a wolf pup. Forbid her anything and it became her heart's desire. She had Ned's long face and brown hair that always looked as though a bird had been nesting in it. I despaired of ever making a lady of her. She collected scabs as other girls collect dolls and would say anything that came into her head. I think she must be dead too. Ah, but then look at what Catelyn thinks. When she said that, it felt as though a giant hand were squeezing her chest. I think that's a great illustration of, of what happened here. Catelyn's thoughts are full of love for Arya, but her words are different, and all Arya ever had access to was her mom's words, because, you know, she can't read Catelyn chapters. So even though Catelyn genuinely misses Arya, would do anything, has done anything to get her back, she is partially responsible for Arya's belief that she might not be welcome back with her family. Just as Arya thinks that war must have changed Rob, it has changed Catelyn. She treated Arya carelessly in peacetime, when it seemed like she'd always have time to fix any mistakes, heal the breach, make sure her daughter knew she was loved. Only now does exasperation curdle into alienation. Parents grow up alongside their children. On this reread, I realized that Arya's self-image as hopelessly dirty lines up with how Beric and Thoros look to her. Tattered and dirty, nothing like the shining, heroic image men like them maintained in the stories. No one actually looks like those images, and the people who care above all about trying to resemble them often aren't heroic in the least. The dirt under Arya's nails, the sweat in her hair, that's what life looks like most of the time, especially if you're as busy as the Brotherhood is. Oh, that's such a great point. The knights are all dirty, and the princess here is also completely dirty. Yes, exactly. So like most normal and good people, the Brotherhood have special Spotify playlists to accommodate rainy days including songs like When Willem's Wife Was Wet, <laughs> which I assume is the Seven Kingdoms version of Wet-Ass Pussy. <laughs> but let me ask you guys, do you have any favorite Rainy Day music? A couple of Beatles songs. Rain, obviously. Kind of a kind of an easy gimme choice. But also um, uh, I'm Only Sleeping. That's one of my favorite songs of theirs. It has that kind of dreamy, watching the, the raindrops hit the window pane kind of feel to it. Yeah, I've definitely uh, made my share of rainy day playlists in my day, but there's something transcendent for me about cranking up Neil Young's On the Beach album on a rainy day, and it even mm -hmm. opens with a song called See the Sky About to Rain. 
Uh, I also like versions of Grateful Dead's Dark Star from the early 60s. Uh, sorry, from early 1969, that whole era of them. A spacey, jazzy adventure that sounds even better with rain hitting your windows, and which noted deadhead George R.R. R. Martin most certainly named his character after. What about you, Manu? So I'm nothing if not a walking elder millennial stereotype. So rainy <laughs> days are for Radiohead and The National. And no, I'm not just saying that for the obvious segue upcoming. <laughs> I like moody, downerish music on rainy days, tunes to reflect the weather, and it's a plus if the song itself mentions rain, like the break in Radiohead's Paranoid Android when Tom mm-hmm. York is repeating, rain down, rain down on me. All this is to get at the reins of Castamere, famously performed by The National for the final credits of Season 2, Episode episode 9, The Blackwater, and later by Sigur Ross during The Purple Wedding, and most recently performed by Wolfman Zack on the Not A Cast podcast. Best possible version. Number one. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> the melody itself became the Lannister leitmotif in the show, from Tyrion whistling the tune or it blasting in the musical piece A Lannister Always Pays His Debts after Jaime saves Brienne from that bear. If you have your A Storm of Swords Act 2 bingo card out, you can cross off the space that says we're getting another ingredient for the Red Wedding. A big one, in fact. This is our first encounter with the lyrics of The Reigns of Castamere, coming off Jamie 5, where he told Roos how there are no reigns in Castamere anymore. Our cast doesn't dwell on the lyrics at all, but it's told from the point of view of Lord Rain and their defiance of Casterly Rock. Like Tolkien, George is using song as a form of history in the great oral tradition of such things, but it's far more recent memory than, say, the Lay of Luthien is. And the song will be the audio cue to begin the massacre that is the Red Wedding, giving the rereader a chance to look at the future on top of learning some history. The one bit of lyric I want to highlight is, The rains weep o'er his hall. And not just for the wispy soundscape of those words. As we know from A Song of Ice and Fire proper, Lord Tywin decimated the house's rain in Tarbeck, root and stem. But what we learned in The World of Ice and Fire is how Tywin accomplished this, by redirecting a nearby river into the mines of Castamere, where the last of the rains had taken refuge. So it literally rained in their halls, flooding them to death. And some people still argue Tywin is a good and practical leader. (laughs) He's good at acting like it. We'll see that after the Red Wedding, when he justifies himself to Tyrion with a magnificent buffet of bullshit. (laughs) Now, Tywin knows how to run a room, sign a treaty, array an army for battle, but everything proceeds from his pride. That's the prime mover, and he's made the cold, deliberate decision that if his pride is challenged, there is nothing he won't do in response. That's the point of the reigns of Castamere. Not just that Tywin killed them all without mercy, but that he did it because someone pointed out that the Emperor has no clothes. We're all just lions here, ruling by virtue of our steel claws. So who are you to act like you shit gold? It's very telling that Lord Rain is described as proud in the song. Only Tywin can be proud. There's only room for one on top of the rock. The Red Wedding flows from this same logic. Destroy your enemies utterly along with anyone unlucky enough to bear their banner, because everyone else is always watching, and you don't want to seem weak. Tywin's plan at this point is for Tyrion to father the next Lord of Winterfell on Sansa. He'll have Stark blood, but his name will be Lannister. It's a takeover instead of a destruction, but the appeal is the same for Tywin, enduring evidence that you better never, ever fuck with him. But the great irony is that this time, the house whose destruction Tywin is overseeing turns out to be his own. 
as his critical mismanagement of his children rebounds to what increasingly looks like the ruin of his cause. The reins weep for him this time, as the Starks are the ones able to secure a foundation for the next generation. Structurally, I really enjoy how a discussion of Starks, followed by the Lannister song, leads us into Gendry saying, well, fuck to all that, I'll join the Brotherhood instead. Both the Lannister and Stark lords and their vassals, be it Tywin or Sir Amory or Lord Bolton, had shown Gendry nothing but beheadings and hangings. The Brotherhood have a clear need. Gendry can mend their armor and shoe their horses, and given his time as an apprentice and prisoner, all he asks in return is food, sleep, and freedom. Well, freedom insofar as you're part of an outlaw gang that's sure to come up against the lords and laws of (laughs) Westeros eventually. Buried in the debate on whether to take Gendry are two ironies. The first is Gendry being inspired by Beric's words back in the Hollow Hill, how they were King Robert's men. So in rejecting serving one feudal lord or another, lords determined by bloodline, he's in fact joining the one fighting force doing so in Gendry's father's name. (laughs) The second irony is Lem saying he won't be getting no kisses from princesses either, like Ulmer of the Kingswood claimed to Jon Snow about his days back in the Kingswood Brotherhood. But it's very likely that Gendry does get a kiss, or more if HBO can be believed, from the Princess Arya Stark before things are all said and done. Yeah, I love the push and pull here between the romantic appeal of the outlaw life and the actual day-to-day realities of it. Gendry is actually living out one of those fool songs as Lem calls them, precisely because of the ironies you pointed out. Gendry is the son of a king. Arya the daughter of an unjustly executed lord? It's the stuff of romance. And that's part of what's going on in these Brotherhood chapters. Arya is living out one of the songs Sansa loved, only not how either Stark's sister ever would have expected. But Gendry doesn't know he's the son of the very king the Brotherhood serves. No one here does, only the reader. So that's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because of the authenticity Lem uses to try and scare him off. Lem says they're all going to wind up dying for the cause. Very ironic given that he refuses to recognize that Beric keeps dying for the cause. But that doesn't bother Gendry. Because the Brotherhood's willingness to die is what makes them special in his eyes. They're not hypocrites. They act on what they believe. Gendry was impressed that they put Sandor on trial, because he's seen both Lannister vassals like Amory Lorch and Stark vassals like Roose Bolton ignore any pretense of justice, preferring to rule through fear. Not only does Gendry admire the Brotherhood's ideals of, well, Brotherhood, he knows they mean it, because he's seen it in action. And Gendry embraces humility among those ideals, very much unlike Robert. All Gendry wants is food, a place to sleep, and the chance to practice his trade on behalf of someone who actually cares. So Gendry kneels, and Sir Gendry, Knight of the Hollow Hill, rises in his stead. So he's greeted by applause and cheers, yes? No, of course not. Just the (laughs) raspy laughter of Sandor Clegane, incredulous at this little show. And of course he is. The guy who has nothing but scorn for knights stumbling onto the set of the Oprah show where everyone in the audience gets a knighthood would be a fucking joke. (laughs) Though deep down, I can imagine Sandor thinking Barrack handing them out so easily isn't any less earned than the silly feats or abject violence that garners knighthoods from kings and lords. The Hound isn't following them around because he enjoys the comic stylings of Barrack Dondarrion, though. It's because they took his gold, leaving him with nothing to exchange for goods and or services, namely wine. Somehow, the lack of alcohol makes Sandor Clegane even angrier than when he's drunk. <laughs> Reminds me of Bender and Futurama, where sobriety is what makes him act out. Please, Sandor, get drunk, if not for yourself, for the people who love you. 
The outlaws explained their outlaw ways to Sandor, though Beric very specifically issued a war bond as an IOU. Clegane, knowing that war bonds are usually dependent on the issuer winning the war, or at least surviving it, knows it's not good for shit. Sorry, I mean it's only good for shit, because I absolutely <laughs> take Sandor at his word that he used Beric's note as toilet paper. This all comes back to the actual logistic and material conditions we discussed earlier. The Brotherhood needs gold, which they are currently using to acquire grain and seed. But the Hound needs gold himself, not just for wine, but for literally everything. Since he's no longer in the employ of Lannisters, and in fact is an enemy of the state right now, he can't get by on his vassal status or any sort of royal privilege. And none of the other kings would likely take him in, no matter how ferocious a fighter. The stink of Lannister is bad enough, the Hound's winning personality isn't going to help him with Rob or Stannis. I like imagining Sandor trying to get along with Stannis, though. <laughs> let's, get the, let's get the two angriest men in Westeros that just glare at each other for the rest of time. Talk about stubborn. Right? It's like that uh, one gif of Puff Daddy and that, like, <laughs> oh, God, what it... I don't actually Whatever know what that show, show that's is. from. Yeah, just another one. <laughs> Later, after his departure, Lem will quiz out how Clegane had so much gold in the first place. Aengai answers for him the hand's tourney from way back in Game of Thrones. He's got the champion's purse for riding, plus saving Sir Loras. Again, there is a material aspect to this. Tourneys can be a source of both income and reputation, and allows knights and freeriders a chance to move socially upwards, not unlike soldiers who prove themselves in battle. Not to be too tautological, but a system built on violence rewards violence. Anyone with skills like Clegane has a chance to earn gold or earn a job by proving his valor in tourney. Two moments I really like for Slander Clegane as a character here in Arya 7. First, when our titular point of view character says she'll kill him and his brother too, the Hound somehow gets even darker and more menacing than he had been. No, that you won't. Sandor Clegane may be penniless, wineless, masterless, shelterless, but he still has a goal, a single purpose, to kill the mountain who rides. The other Sandor observation I enjoy comes from Beric instead, that Sandor Kagane may want to kill every man here, but he would not do it in their sleep. Whether out of core principles or because sleeping men don't make for good sport, the Hound just wouldn't do that. As he says in the HBO show, which in turn was cribbing from another HBO show, The Wire, man's gotta have a code. Just like we saw in Jamie 5, those we assumed were monsters in the story's outset are far more complex, and not nearly as villainous as their caustic personalities make them appear. With the Hound gone, Beric leaves orders to feather Kagane's horse if he follows them from there. This causes a bit of debate amongst the men, because, can you guess what I'll say here? The material value of the horse <laughs> far outweighs obstructing Sandor Clegane. Thoros raises his voice in unison with the Lightning Lord, though. The trial by combat was sacred, and its outcome must be honored. The Lord of Light is not done with Sl Sandor Clegane. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, great points all around. He's, he's not done with Sandor like he's not done with Beric. Uh, and I love that moment that you mentioned when he tells Arya that she won't kill the mountain. It's not because the mountain's ten times her size or that she's a weak little girl. It's because it's his battle, the one that left him with an internal scar to match the horrid mess of his face. And the Hound's presence here feels almost hallucinatory. After the opening skirmish and the intimate dialogue between Arya, Beric, and Thoros, the Hound shows up like an apparition, like the ghost of Christmas past, to confront the Brotherhood about his gold before fading away back into the dark of night just one page later. 
It might not lead to any introspection from Lem, who calls it foraging, but it certainly paints the Brotherhood's dealings as much more morally gray than the simple Robin Hood framework of robbing the rich to feed the poor. After all, as you pointed out, without his gold, they're essentially leaving him to die, despite the supposed divine intervention in the trial by combat that allowed him to live in the first place. Also, just want to note here Sandor's reaction to Beric being alive after being dealt a death blow in that trial. Arya 6 ends on the reveal of Beric's resurrection without cutting back to any of the other characters, though you can probably imagine some off-page conversation takes place. But when Sandor shows up here, his only acknowledgement is, I should kill you all over again for that. <laughs> in reference to Beric creating more knights. He's not in awe, not driven to any kind of religious awakening, nor does he really lie to himself like Lem. He knows death. And he faces it as an almost mundane aspect of reality. I killed you. You're alive again. That means I can kill you again if I need or want to. <laughs> it's very interesting how Sandor relates to the Brotherhood, building on what we saw in that last Arya chapter. Sandor is always a complicated character to talk about, not only because he's a non-point of view character, but because he's almost always putting on a performance. His goal here is to threaten the Brotherhood into giving his gold back, I guess. But he's so obviously pathetic that it's hard to believe he thought that would work, which gives away how desperate he really is. Even though he's introduced in this chapter laughing at everyone, he's the one you wind up laughing at, because his blustering persona is so transparent at this point. All he can do is call them thieves, like that's really going to bring them to their knees. What Sandor is really here to do is beg, which he doesn't want to admit, naturally. But if the goal is to threaten, why not actually kill the guards? Why just pretend like you might have? I think there are a few different reasons. One, like you were saying, is the honor of the fight. While Sandor is extremely cynical about the power structures that have produced the war, and rightly so, he lives for the fight in itself. Now, he's killed civilians before, but during the King's Landing riot, he had the excuse that they were threatening Sansa, and with Micah, he had the excuse of harm done to royal blood, as paper-thin an excuse as that is. But if your opponent is literally asleep, not even running away, but asleep, there is no way for it to be anything but murder. And then Sandor loses the ability to stand outside the system making fun of it. I also think that, given how he talked to Sansa in the Clash of Kings, that part of Sandor still really wants to live out the songs as a true knight. That part of him might be attracted to the Brotherhood's ideals, for the same reasons Gendry is. And so, for all that he genuinely wants his money back, he doesn't want to kill any of them. But more than anything, I think the reason Sandor holds back is that he does not want to prove them right about him. He both loves and hates his reputation. He leans into it even as he blames other people for prejudging him. It's his strength and his weakness. I love the bit where Gendry says that Sandor's gold is being put to use feeding those people whose crops Sandor burned. That's not technically true, in the same way Sandor wasn't responsible for the list of the dead the Brotherhood read at his trial. Sandor wasn't part of Tywin's army, He's not one of the bloody mummers, and he's certainly not working for his brother. He's been at King's Landing throughout the war up until recently. But for Gendry, Sandor's violence makes for a convenient stand-in for everything he's against. Now Gendry has found a vessel for this outrage in the Brotherhood, and he immediately goes to work making the case. It's the zealotry of the newly converted, always amusing to the more world-weary among us. It reminds me of, of John bragging about the Night's Watch to Jamie in the show. We've defended the wall for thousands of years. And Jamie just goes, is it we already? Sandor counters that Gendry only believes the Brotherhood and not him because of his face. Again, I don't think this is actually literally true, because Gendry has seen worse by now, and he just bent the knee to Beric Dondarrion, who looks like several corpses sewn together. 
Just like Sandor was a useful target for Gendry's philosophy, Gendry is a useful target for Sandor's philosophy, a synecdoche of a world that hates him for being ugly. Sandor is stuck in self-pity, something he has in common with Tyrion. If we break it all down to story structure, this scene exists to let us know that Sandor is following the Brotherhood, so it doesn't come out of nowhere when he snatches Arya up at the end of her next chapter. But in terms of character, it's a valuable scene because it brings so many arcs together. Sandor, Gendry, and even Arya, she's still here too. Yeah, stop me if you've heard this before, but Arya is underfoot throughout this chapter. First watching the battle, getting a few moments with Beric and Thoros, before again becoming an observer for the Hound's attempted... Well, I don't know what the Hound was actually attempting to do, to be honest. But the chapter circles back to her in the end, alone and curled up in bed, giving it similar vibes to the end of Arya V, A Storm of Swords, where she curls up and says her prayers near the end of that chapter as well. It starts with Jockin's coin, a memory of a time where she actually had some measure of power. She could kill with a whisper, the only instance when she wasn't completely at the whims of her captors or protectors. But not only is she powerless, she's alone, and getting a loner as the story goes on. <laughs> Jacquin, Hot Pie, Lamy, Yorin, Sirio, her dad, and now even Gendry is leaving her. It's ratcheting up that despair that will drive us towards the Red Wedding. Like Worry McCann says in the show, the closer Arya will get to seeing her mom and brother, the more worried she will get, the more anxious. She's a lone wolf, reminding me of Ned's line about the lone wolf dying. On different scales, we see each Stark character grow more alone or isolated, often to their downfall. For Ned and Rob, they hemorrhage their men before finally meeting their ends. Jon too will send away his closest friends when becoming Lord Commander at the Wall, which too will lead to his death. Sansa has been on an island by herself for some time, with no one to truly trust. And if the last hero story is to be believed, Bran will be deprived of all his traveling companions at some point too. It's a crucible for all the Starks, a period of isolation, whether social or physical, from the rest of their pack. As Arya recites her list of names, the transient nature of memory rears its ugly head. She remembers what the Cleganes look like. She's shared proximity with one or both for much of the saga already. And who can forget dear Ratboy, meaning Joffrey, and his <laughs> mother. But the others on her list, Raph, Dunson, Polliver, they're starting to fade away in her mind. Carrying all your grievances at all times is hard, corrosive work. It wears on you, in places unseen, coming to fruition as Arya turns down a darker path in Feast Dance. So it's a really nice little thematic parallel to Beric's fading memory. As Arya constantly adapts to survive, and that takes a darker turn, what parts of her remain and what parts are left behind? What parts can be resurrected and which are gone forever? That list of people she's lost all along the way makes for a great contrast with the list of people she wants dead. In a way, it's like she's trying to swap one out for the other. Replace the grief inside her with righteous vengeance. Like killing Gregor would make up for losing Ned on some cosmic scale. But what those two lists really have in common is that they come down to Arya being alone in the world. She's forgetting the people she wants dead. Ironic that she's still got the coin, this tangible reminder of Jock and Hagar when he's the most ghostly of everyone who haunts her. No true name, no true face. Like I said earlier, Arya's story is all about how the bonds between us are the source of both our joy and our pain. At the end of this chapter, Gendry apologizes to Arya. He knows her that well. Even without her saying anything, he knows what this means to her. But admitting how sad she is about it is too vulnerable for Arya, so she has to pretend like it doesn't matter to her. 
that she likes being alone. Wolves and dogs consume Arya's last thoughts this chapter, weighing the words the hound said while nearby wolves kept time during the night. And there's no lack of them either. She makes dozens, maybe hundreds of them, not knowing that it is her pack in a way. We open this chapter with a man dying as the Brotherhood arrived at the Septry, and the chapter ends with burying the dead men as the Brotherhood depart. There's a certain symmetry there, a full process realized. It's a transitional chapter for Arya. We had a big fireworks factory last time out, and when we return to her in Arya 8, we'll be chatting ghosts of High Heart and the Hound stealing her away. This chapter moves us from point A to point B, but in George's masterful way, he makes stopping for a breath in between A and B a memorable and enjoyable affair. So, moving into our foreshadowing and groundwork section, Thoros muses that a seventh death might be the end of us, which seems to come true. The next death will be Beric's last, and Lady Stoneheart will rise in place of the dead Catelyn Stark. There's some religious numerology going on there too, seven being the number of the faith, and Cat herself being one of the more prominent point of view characters that was a regular practitioner of the faith of the seven. It's interesting Beric giving way to Stoneheart there. Obviously we don't have POV eyes on the scene. Arya dreams about pulling Catelyn's body out of the water later in the book, but then snaps back to herself just as the Brotherhood show up. And then by the time we see the Brotherhood again, it's already long happened. But uh, you know, part of me thinks it's, it, it happened the way it did because Beric himself was trying to pass on the last kiss, which I don't get the sense he's ever done before. But also part of it, yeah, is that 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 that's seven lives. You know, cats get nine lives. Beric only gets seven. I guess Relor is kind of kind of stingy about that. Didn't want to didn't want to pay for all nine. But yeah, the the, the centrality of, of seven to this story and to many stories says that you know that was always going to be an important one. Yeah, I think um, that little moment that we pointed out also with the hound calling out Arya's comment about killing the mountain. Um, it's a little, it's a little line in this chapter, but I think it's, I think it's going to end up in the game bowl that the show may be mishandled, but I think it's uh, still coming in some form or another uh, in the books. So moving into theory and discussion, they say the Lord of light is not done with Sandor again. Is this anything? What do you guys <laughs> think this refers to? It's tough because there's a lot Sandor could potentially do and and does do, you know, after this. And who knows what, what R'hllor had in mind specifically and what was just uh, ancillary to its purposes. I, you know, but the obvious answer for me is like, you know, Sandor has some light, some life, some fire inside him still. And there's there's a good part of him that's worth keeping him alive for. That certainly lines up with what happens to him in A Feast for Crows when we get the hints that he's become a gravedigger on the Quiet Isle, which is interesting because after this, like, blessing from the Lord of Light, Sandor becomes a monk in the Faith of the Seven. So he's kind of crossing every every faith uh, in Westeros along the way. If there's something specific, I imagine it might have something to do with Arya keeping her safe, getting her out of the morass of the Red Wedding, maybe coming back to see her later. I don't think, you know, I think the show... In, in season eight was a little too on the nose and kind of wrap, tried to wrap things up a little too neatly in terms of what R'hllor was up to with Arya. I think it'll be a little more open-ended here. But so much of Sandor revolves around the Stark sisters that if there's a distinct purpose here, I got to imagine it involves that somehow. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if there's some machinations that lead to him being reunited with Sansa. There seems to be like some unfinished business there and they're both going through a number of changes and you can see a scenario where he interacts with multiple members of the Stark family, both alive and dead or undead or whatever you want to call it. 
Um, so that's definitely, uh, I think, on the horizon for him in some form. I think for me, the like sticking point is what exactly does the Lord of Light mean? Like, is it just that Sandor has some purpose in the story generally, or that he's going to specifically tie into something related to Rolor or one of the bands of people that are following him? Um, as much as I didn't really appreciate like the Clegane Bull of the show, I did find something enjoyable about Sandor returning to Thoros and Beric, and especially that one grave digging scene that opens up season seven, I think was pretty well done. So if there is yeah. a chance that he maybe falls back in with Thoros at some point. Um, I think I might find that a little more interesting on its face than, say, him going down south to fight his brother in a trial by combat or something like that. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of potential for adventure and more action movie shenanigans with that with that pairing. Maybe just where Lord just uh, disapproves of Gregor being brought back. Like, I'm the only one allowed to resurrect people here. <laughs> he's just mad that Kyburn <laughs> yeah, really, uh, really spoke out of turn there, so he's got to take care of business. So I think that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, Arya 7. Zach, I can't tell you how, uh, how glad we were to have you on for this one. I was looking forward to it forever, and this was just so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. I've had a blast. I've had this big, cheesy smile on my face for the last <laughs> two hours. Great spending real time with you guys with as much time as you guys spend in my ears on my commute week in and week out i appreciate all the work you guys do and uh you know the opportunity to contribute to it in a small way no thank you man it's i mean this is actually our first time really talking like this too and like seeing each other face to face and it's been great we've been friends for almost a decade on twitter yeah um, we talk almost every day yeah we, we actually do talk every day um so it's been great getting this chance to actually hang out and talk like one of the things that brought us together in the first place absolutely man it's, it's been a blast so uh, thanks as always everyone for listening as always if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice we really appreciate that it helps people find us you can check out our patreon at patreon.com slash notacast asoiaf where patrons get exclusive episodes early access to our regular episodes and a bunch more benefits you can follow us on twitter at notacast asoiaf or shoot us an email at notacast asoiaf at gmail.com and you can find me at poor quentin on twitter and I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Nauticast ASOIAF is now on Instagram, so check us out there as well. And Zach, where can the fine people find you? I'm on Twitter at WolfmanZach underscore, and on Instagram at WolfmanZach. So, next time, in A Song of Ice and Fire, the two Stark boys pass like ships in the night in A Storm of Swords, Bran 3, and John 5. We're going to be doing both those chapters together, since they're very much linked to the Queen's Crown chapters that happen kind of simultaneously. That's going to be a fun time. Uh, elsewhere, I've uh, put out my most recent Lord of the Rings episode for all $5 and above patrons, getting into Book 6, the final book of Lord of the Rings with Chapter 1, The Tower of Kirith Ungol. And my next Star Wars episode for $5 and above patrons will be out next week. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time for A Storm of Swords Brand 3 and John 5. <laughs>